Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. Do you have any fond memories of of fireflies or or wait, no, we've talked about this before. You you call them lightning bugs. I call them lightning bugs. You call them lightning bugs? I call them lightning bugs. Okay. Any fond memories of fireflies slash lightning bugs or situations with such? Well, I mean, I collected them and things when I was a kid, right? You put them in jars. And what would you do with them? Uh, forget about them. <laughs> Murder them, basically, unintentionally. Um, yeah. yeah. But then um, – are there are there as many fireflies, lightning bugs around? I actually don't. Well, so where we live, no. I mean, we live in the suburbs. Growing up in, I mean, I see them. Um, growing up in rural Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. we see them all the time. Yeah, rural Pennsylvania. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's it's a it's a common retort of mine, um, <laughs> a refrain, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, but no, yeah. I don't think I don't think we see them that often. Um, yeah. For for me. Same thing. I grew up. They were around. We'd catch them. I have to say, though, uh, so so I recently got married. Okay. Uh, yeah. And there's, there's this isn't just me like, hooray, me, marriage, uh, but kind of. But also... We can do that. Yeah. My partner and I met in the way that many millennials meet these days is over the internet. <gasps> this was back in the early days of online dating. Did I know that? Well, you do now. Anyway. Um, okay. <laughs> And we, um, she actually, she read at our wedding, our first two kind of chats to one another, What? which they are, they are super cringeworthy, especially mine. Mine's real bad, but in hers, and I do explicitly remember this. She's from, um, she's from Tennessee, from kind of rural Tennessee or no, she's from, um, the Oak Ridge area where the big national lab is. Okay. And, um, in in the thing she wrote, she's like, yeah, I had a really typical childhood growing up kind of in the country, catching lightning bugs uh, or fireflies. I can't remember what she called them. And then taking them to the market to sell to the scientists who worked at the national lab <gasps> that they would use the bioluminescence for gene marking. Oh, my gosh. Sold. Instantly sold. I was like, this one, this one. I like this one. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's like the first thing she ever kind of typed me. Oh and God. that's forever ingrained in my brain. So yes, great memories of I love that. Of fireflies. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Science is fascinating. But don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Vicki Thompson. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. Okay, so we're talking fireflies or, or lightning bugs, depending on what you want to call them. Not just to reminisce about how my now wife and I met, uh, but to talk science. And to explain this, I'm going to bring in producer Anupama Chandrasekhan. Hi, Anupama. Hello, Shane. So Anupama, what are you going to tell us about today? You know, I'm going to tell you about these beetles with lanterns that are called fireflies. Wait, so wait, they're beetles? Wait, is this a... Is this a real story, a fictional story? <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I'm really interested in this because I've, I've, I grew up with, with fireflies. So jokes apart, like what's, what are we learning about today? You know, Vicky, I'm kind of flattered that you find my descriptions unbelievable. And yeah, yeah, it, it is absolutely a misnomer. Fireflies are indeed beetles. And you know something that 
when they have their annual mating ritual, they actually try to attract each other through these flashes, these flashes of bioluminescence. That must be quite a sight. Yeah, like uh, like 4th of July fireworks here in the States. I mean, actually, Shane, it's even better than that because imagine these fireworks, but, you know, to the gentle chorus of crickets in a dark forest. And, and there's none of those, none of that, you know, ear splitting blasts uh, that you would kind of witness with, with fireworks. And I have seen fireflies in South India too. And really it's, it's very, very special. In fact, I understand that sometimes these flashes that you see, they're actually synchronized by males of the same species. And I can just keep going on and on, you know, based on what I learned about all this, but I'm going to leave it to University of Colorado's Orit Peleg. She's she's really the best person to do this and explain to you everything about fireflies because she actually studies firefly communication. Great, let's hear about it. So, Aurit, I'm very excited actually to talk to you because uh, fireflies are such beautiful creatures in the way you've kind of, you know, you're seeing a mix of sciences in it uh, through your studies. I think that's very fascinating for me. So I'd, I'd like to start by just asking you to introduce yourself in a brief way to our listeners so that they know who you are, you know, uh, which is a wide range of things. So if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and also about, you know, your study pertaining to fireflies, just briefly. Yeah, sure. So my name is Orit Peleg and I'm faculty at CU Boulder, bringing backgrounds that are somewhat diverse in the fields of computer science and physics and math. And I'm using them as tools or a lens to look at natural history and specifically animal communication in nature and we're in my lab we're really interested in communication in very large groups that's where things like signal to noise ratios and optimization of the signal become really important and fireflies are a really wonderful example of that in nature their signal is almost digital on off zero one probably as close as it gets to computer language in uh, in nature. And we're trying to understand how they do it. Tell us about these bugs that you study. Tell us about the varieties, geographies, and really what makes them sparkle? What are fireflies? So fireflies are beetles. <laughs> and they do seem, when you look at them in the forest, it, they really resemble those little sparks of fire that come out of, you know, if you're camping and you have a fireplace, it really looks like that, you know, just like little streaks of light that are moving around. And they communicate with bioluminescence, as you said. So this is cold light that they can produce in um, an organ that they have in their abdomen. It's called the lantern. And they uh, use that communication specifically in mating context. So uh, the males would produce a particular flash pattern, flash on, off, on, off, and the females would respond back. And each species of fireflies, and there's over 2,000 of them, has a unique flash pattern of a on and off flashing. And the males have a particular pattern and the females have a particular pattern. And 
can sort of imagine that if you do a, just a little uh, mental exercise, if you can only see the flashes and you cannot see the firefly when it's not flashing, if there's only one firefly, it's really easy to connect the dots and know what was the pattern that this firefly produced. But as soon as there's more fireflies, there's immense visual occlusion. And I don't know how much I should, should dive into the details, but one way, one way to solve that visual occlusion or to help deal with it is by synchronization of the flashes. What did it feel like when you first started observing them or your first observation of the fireflies? Because I understand you'd never seen a firefly until, you know, even when you first heard about this kind of uh, phenomenon, scientific phenomenon. So I first heard about fireflies and their synchronization actually when I was in undergrad. I took a dynamical systems class and we used a book that was written by Professor Steven Strogatz, uh, who's a mathematician from Cornell University, excellent mathematician, and in parallel also excellent science communicator. And the chapter we, we specifically talked about in that class was about synchronization in the context of a little bit more physics-y things, like synchronization of electrons in a superconductor and how that allows for superconductivity. But before everything began, before we really dived into the sort of hard math, uh, one of the examples that Steven Strogatz gave in the introduction of the chapter is other synchronization phenomena in nature, and one of them was the firefly synchronization. And that's where I first heard about these, these events, mating events, where fireflies synchronize their flashes, and really big swarms of thousands of individuals all blink or flash in unison. And you're right to point out that I did not see fireflies in person until... I moved to the US and you know, started to think also about what I want to work on as an independent investigator. So I only saw fireflies for the first time uh, in the US and in Israel where I grew up, I never saw any fireflies. So I'm a little bit jealous of, I know that fireflies have these like really nostalgic, romantic um, childhood memories for many people. I acquired them much later in my life, but I think I, I was just as excited to see them for the first time in the US. And tell us a little bit about what synchrony is, like what was your study about and what is its significance? Okay, so I will try. Synchronization, by just a very brief definition, is coupled events that happen at the same time. So if we have two people that are clapping for some reason and they synchronize their clap, so they clap, they produce the sound at the same time, or fireflies that flash at the same time, these order in time, as Steven Strogatz refers to it, is the phenomenon of synchronization. And by the way, it's, it can be decoupled from rhythm. It doesn't have to be a rhythmic activity, but synchronization can be just you know a set of random events that happen to, to overlap for several different entities or agents or animals or even you know us humans. And um, so that's just generally about synchronization. And you can imagine that if you have several communication channels that are coming from individuals and they produce the same signal at the same time, that 
immediately helps the, these individuals increase something that we refer to as signal-to-noise ratio. And so how much, signal, how much signal does the broadcasters, you know, could be multiple, produce? And how much noise there is in the background? You, of course, for a good communication system, you want to make sure that the signal is much higher than the noise. And that's where we're getting into the cocktail party problem which is actually a classical problem in neuroscience that I think traditionally people studied it in the context of uh, human behavior. And the context is a cocktail party where there's lots of people in the room. As humans, we're really good in just tuning into the person that we're conversing with and kind of tuning out from all the other conversations that are going around. It's not easy to do, but humans are really good in doing this. Machines are not. And so it's, you know, it's, it's an ongoing field of research to try to understand how humans really filter out these other conversations. Right. And could you uh, now then just uh, give us a sense of when did you first start researching this? And I understand you would go trekking with your colleagues up Smoky Mountains and actually even have to train your eyes to figure out stuff in the darkness. So we started working on this when I opened up my lab in Colorado a couple of years ago. That problem of synchronization that I heard about when I was an undergrad kind of stayed dormant in my head. And when I was thinking about cool new systems that I can focus on as an independent investigator, that's one of the first things that popped out. And to study them, I had to recruit a, somewhat of a diverse team. So it's uh, I have postdocs that are trained, you know, with different backgrounds. One of the main postdocs who is working on this is Rafael Sarfati. He's trained as a physicist. I also had a student who is trained as a, in evolutionary biology, and she knows the understands, you know, field work and everything behind the biology of these fireflies. Her name is Julie Hayes, and it's, it's, there are several new ones that are just joining the lab now. And what we usually do is we go together to one of these sites where we know that there there's a swarm of fireflies and i can tell you how how we know that's actually not super trivial and we bring with us some cameras and some equipment sometimes we have to hike in a little bit and we try to find we try to guess you know even within that site where we know the fireflies will be around we try to guess where would be a really good viewpoint for our cameras before it gets dark and then we set everything up that's actually the hard work. And then once the sun sets and the fireflies come out, we, you know, we're also, we have the luxury of also observing this beautiful phenomenon and while we record data. So her research is pretty interdisciplinary. Right. I mean, absolutely. And I was actually quite surprised to hear that because when you think of fireflies, you actually just think it's, you know, entomology, which is, you know, study of insects. But what I learned was that actually there's a lot of physics and even computer science involved in, in this research. I really wonder what it must be like finding these spots in our national parks and spending time in the dead of the night just looking at the spectacle. I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time in national parks and it's just it sounds magical. I mean, yeah, I was really wondering about that too, because when I heard of Orit and the research she does, that was really on my mind. And I did ask her that question. What is it like to be there, you know, and to observe this? You are a scientist, yes, but you are also an audience. 
Right. I love being the audience for, for the show of the fireflies. It is by far the most beautiful biological phenomenon I've ever witnessed. I highly recommend to anybody who is able to watch it at least once in their lifetime, which would be on the bucket list of everybody. It is, as you pointed out before, the light of the fireflies is very dim. Once you stay in, inside the forest for a while, our eyes kind of adjust to, to that dim light. And it, what it looks like is really just lots of little lights that are moving around in the forest. And when they're synchronized, then you also, of course, can observe the synchronization. And it's sometimes really, really vast, especially at the Smoky Mountains with the swarm of Otinus carolinas that we worked with. This swarm of firefly, we never saw the end of it. <laughs> it spans miles over miles over miles. Uh, with our cameras, we can get just, you know, a small field of view with our eyes a little bit longer uh, or, you know, wider. And there are really some interesting spatial correlations happening in that forest with the fireflies. For some species, there is this wave that propagates when the fireflies start to flash. And it, so a firefly that is further away from you would start flashing. And then so you see that. And then another firefly that is closer, you know, a second later starts and, and closer and closer. And you see it's coming to you and then it passes by. And it's really wonderful. There's lots of interesting complexities and such a rich system to admire its beauty and also ask scientific questions about. So what is the significance of your research and what could its application be? There's really like a zoo of models that explains, mathematical models that explain synchronization. Uh, Stephen Strogas is one of the main people who worked on this. And I can talk, I can dive in more into the mathematics if you, if you want, uh, just let me know. And these mathematical models make really beautiful predictions about um, what individuals do, what the group does. And on the experiment side, it's been, you know, really hard to study these fireflies for a couple of reasons. First reason is that until recently, the technology just wasn't there. People had to go out to the field with photodiode amplifiers to be able to catch that, you know, to, to record that really, really dim light of the fireflies. So that, that was one limitation um, just from the technological side. It was really hard to acquire quantitative data. And then in addition, it's also, you have to be at the right time at the right place. There is this organization. You have to figure out when the fireflies are going to start their really short span of life as adults that flash. It's only, they only uh, stay around for a couple of weeks each swarm and then only a couple of hours every night. So it's very time constrained. So there was not a lot of quantitative data for all of these really good reasons. And nowadays we can use fairly simple off-the-shelf cameras like GoPros, sometimes with even the smart newest models, smartphones can catch the, the really dim light of fireflies. So we don't really need, uh, you know, advanced fancy technology. And we're also really lucky that there's a, a few spots in the US where fireflies exist in, in national parks and the National Park Service really helps us. There's usually a park entomologist that help us estimate when and where the fireflies will emerge. So one of the main contributions, I guess, that me and my lab members made was starting to acquire quantitative data. With, there was a lot of method development involved, which we 
made it really point to to make available for everybody. So it's uh, it's the, the software is uh, published online. If anybody want to use it, they're welcome to. And the cameras, as I mentioned, are fairly simple and, and accessible. So why is this light flashing happening, and what are the peculiarities of of this? Okay, so it's really a fascinating system. For most of the swarms that we work with, the males are flashing. They're flying around just above ground, maybe one meter above ground. And they're advertising themselves for mating purposes. And the females are more stationary on the ground. So there are some lots of interesting points about mixing and how to track fireflies when they're moving, especially the males. And what's happening for these kind of swarms is that the males produce a particular flash pattern that is again, very specific to their own species. And the females kind of observe, and they seem to have preference for very punctual males, males that produce a you know punctual sequence that is identified with their own species. And then if they see a male that they would want to continue the, com- the mating conversation with, then they would respond back with their female species-specific flash pattern, and then some of the males would land close to the females and they continue this conversation. It switches also to a more chemical communication at that point. There is pheromone communication and because they're close to each other, they can, they can switch to this modality. And a couple of interesting peculiarities about this system. So as I mentioned, uh, each species has its own signal um, and there's lots of different signals in nature. We're really interested in how these signals evolved to be distinguishable from each other because the females have to somehow perceive them and, and say, okay, this guy is from my own species and great, let's let's flash back and, you know, this firefly is not. There's also some really interesting mimicry that I don't work on personally, but that is just mind-blowing. So, you know, going into this um, direction of game theory and how and and deceiving and mimicry there's some some species of fireflies in photoris species where the females would mimic the flash pattern of other species females attract their males for the sole purpose of eating them (laughs) and so of course they cannot mate so that's just another peculiarity that came to mind Sounds like it's a little code that each species uses to communicate, right? I mean, that's that's wild. Like a individual little language. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if we flash a light or something with with a certain pattern around flyer flies that use this pattern. I wonder would they be attracted to it? Yeah, I mean that's really a great question, and I was surprised to hear this, but really, Orith has tried to capture some fireflies of course with due permission from the national parks and she's actually done some of these experiments with with captive fireflies you've also studied fireflies in captivity um, even though it's i i understand it's one of the most difficult things to do yeah so it is challenging because first we have to bring in these big tents with us to the field i would say this is probably semi-captivity ideally you would also be able to cultivate them maybe in lab conditions and then work with them you know just locally in the lab but this is not possible at the moment for many reasons and so we, we work we still work with them in the field but we basically catch them with a net 
we have a permit for it. You shouldn't do it if you don't have a permit. And we bring them into these little tents. These tents are visually isolating these fireflies from the rest of the swarm. And the reason this is important is because some of these swarms are huge. We can only capture a really small fraction of the swarm with our cameras. And we care about what the fireflies perceive and how they make what, what they see and how they integrate that information and make decisions to flash back. So if we have a limited field of view, we never know how many fireflies we have in our system. It could be that there's a bunch of other fireflies just outside our field of view that are affecting the system significantly. And when we catch individual fireflies or small groups of fireflies and bring them into this tent, then we know exactly how many fireflies we have. We know their sex. We know their species. So it's a slightly more controlled environment where we can start asking questions about how individuals make decisions. I mean, you've also connected it to proto-language, right? I mean, a very basic language. Yeah. So I'm really interested in that question of how these signals evolved, how the flash patterns evolved. And the connection to proto-languages is actually coming from previous work that um, David Krokauer from the Santa Fe Institute did on language evolution. And the idea is that almost any biological entity needs to communicate somehow with its environment or with other individuals, whether that's you know, our cells, uh, our organs, our self as humans, and then uh, maybe groups of humans. And all of these systems evolved their temporal signals in which they communicate. So um, how did that happen? Is there any interesting universalities across systems? Um, and again, this is where fireflies shine, <laughs> no pun intended, because their signal is so simple. It's really just a temporal on-off to some extent, almost like a Morse code. And we know with Morse codes that the way they, was, they were designed, at least some of them were to minimize the, the length of the message. So the letters that are the most common in the alphabet were also associated with the shortest Morse code. And so what was it like? What, what, what are these evolutionary constraints for the fireflies? We know that there's you know, a few main aspects like turning on the light costs some energy. So maybe they're minimizing the amount of time that the lantern is on. It also uh, exposes them to predation. So that's another aspect. But then these signals have to be distinguishable. They have to be able to see or perceive a particular pattern and say, this is species A, or this is my species, and this is not my species. So we're using the fireflies as a model system, basically, for communication signal evolution and these you know, very basic languages, which I'm, I'm doing air quotes <laughs> to illustrate that you know, it's a very, very basic type of language. So while one sees there's a lot of simplicity, there's a lot of complexity also involved in this kind of basic, minimal, you know. Yeah, exactly. And and that's actually where our tent experiments, we can extend them a little bit and introduce into the tent some artificial light, some LEDs, hmm. which the fireflies respond to. And we can actually program these LEDs to produce a very particular pattern. We can I mean, this is just completely determined by us and we can see how these fireflies respond if it's their own species and they're synchronized how they synchronize and that seems to be like a very good platform to to answer some of the, the questions that you just brought up what are the challenges that are presented before you as you continue studying 
these these insects you know particularly when we are talking about an increasingly lit up dark you know increasingly lit up night skies yeah so that's that's a really big issue it's one of the main stressors that fireflies uh, experience from the environment light pollution um significantly lowers the signal to noise ratio uh, if we think about the brightness of the signal so if firefly flash is very very dim and there is some light pollution around then the contrast between the flash and the background is going to be different it's going to be maybe lower in areas that are light polluted and that has been shown to actually have a significant effect on the mating success of these fireflies so the field of firefly conservation well, didn't really exist until a couple of years ago and in the last five years or so more and more reports are coming about the condition of the fireflies and how environmental stressors are limiting their ability to reproduce, uh, limiting their populations. There's, by the way, also other factors like climate change and habitat destruction. And some of these fireflies are at real risk and they've been red listed by, by these organizations. So um, we're actually, um, you know, this is one of the challenges, you know, what if some of the populations we work with are not going to be around in the next couple of years? It's really sad and terrifying, not just because of the science, but because these these fireflies are just so magnificent and, and beautiful and they should have they should have what they need, you know, in order to survive on our planet, uh, like all other living systems. Um, yeah. I understand you guys are still finding newer and newer species of fireflies as you're going out in the field. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's that was quite something, you know, that means there's so much that hasn't been discovered about about these beetles. Yeah, it's partially because because of the light pollution aspect and fireflies, when they have the option, they seem to prefer darker places. So they're a little bit, you know, hidden. They're off the beaten path, in a sense. And it really takes somebody that was happened to be at a place where there's fireflies uh, to know that they're going to be there. It's something that is really hard to just, you know, observe them from, from far away. And so we actually are starting now um, a crowdsourcing project where, because the recording method is fairly simple, we are sending people kits with two cameras and hard drive. And all of these, you know, community knowledge becomes really helpful in discovering new populations, potentially new species, new behaviors. And so this is something that um, the lab is going towards and I'm, I'm really excited about. Any, any unforgettable incident that you'd want to share with our listeners, something that, you know, really has stayed in your mind, anything funny that has happened through the course of your research or findings or tricks? One night comes to mind from actually the last experimental season. Uh, we worked at Congaree National Park in South Carolina. There's a different species of fireflies there that we usually work with. And we have a particular site. It's like the third year that we're coming back to the same site. And um, the park ranger that is helping us uh, set up and find the fireflies, um, she told us that there is another swarm, another location where there is more fireflies. And it's kind of nice. Maybe you should check it out. <laughs> and she was really underselling it, uh, as it turns out. Uh, one night there was a thunderstorm, so we couldn't walk in our regular spot and just on the way home we the rain stopped and we said okay why don't we go check out this new new spot that the park ranger told us about and it was 
magical. So it was the highest density of fireflies, synchronous fireflies that I've ever seen. That's how it started. We were kind of going through the forest, just exploring. We ended up at this body of water that was fairly open. And I saw for the first time coexistence of two species. There were synchronous fireflies that were closer to the water and underground. And then at the top of the trees, a totally different firefly species that were flashing in a different sequence. And it was magnificent. Me and my, my mentees, we, we hung out there just a few hours watching that spectacular location. There were also other vocal sounds that seemed to be synchronized, some, some frogs and some crickets. And it was just... I don't know. The, uh, I, we we all just wanted to absorb it in as, as much as possible. Light and sound show, right? I'm sure there were crickets as yes. well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> anything else you want to add? I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. But anything else you want to add about? Yeah. So I just want to say, in terms of uh, maybe um, the connection to geography, we're really interested in the distribution of different species of fireflies, which is also part of the crowdsourcing data can help us assess. And it can help firefly conservation, but it can also help us better understand how overlapping species, like the ones we saw in that spectacular night, since they really coexist at the same spot, how did they signal evolved to be distinguishable from from each other so hopefully with more data we you know can tackle some of these problems yeah it'll hopefully shed light on some of these problems yeah should we say that yes 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 <laughs> i'm sure we'll get do. used to please. a lot of bad puns <laughs> with the fireflies right set it on fire and uh, so on and so forth yeah there's no bad puns when it comes to fireflies <laughs> <laughs> great great I have to agree with Orit. Fireflies are so cool. So cool. Bioluminescent cool. <laughs> oh, goodness. I really I really do hope that the crowdsourcing project as well reveals some, I mean, I'm sure it will, but really exciting new things. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of data, really wide breadth of data. Yeah, and I know that this, this camera technology is making things easier to collect data on insects like fireflies. Yeah, I mean, you know, Camera technology was very, very expensive, insanely expensive before. And that really, the costs of that have really come down. And I think that's what makes this kind of crowdsourcing really possible and feasible, really. Yeah. So here's to finding new species of fireflies. And their flashy toads. <laughs> <laughs> all right, folks. Well, that is all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks so much to Anupama for bringing us this story and to Orit for sharing her work with us. This episode was produced by Anupama with audio engineering from Colin Warren. Art by Jay Steiner. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. Please rate and review us and you can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all. And we'll see you next week. Is that from your wedding? It's from the wedding, yeah. So Nupam, I got married a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago? Yeah, yeah, pretty recently. Oh my god, congratulations! Thank you. He's so sly, right? I know, right? That's why he went silent. And James was taking it on, right? <laughs> hey, that's cool. It's been a, it's been, a, there's been a lot going on. Lovely. Um, but.
we had a, a, actually a few of these cardboard cutouts of our dog because we couldn't we, we love our dog but he's a menace <laughs> he was barking in one of our recordings right was it your dog or was it vicky's dog yeah so yeah you've heard our, my dog you've heard vicky's yeah. dog i actually printed out one like one of him sitting he looks very regal uh so i took one and unbeknownst to me our friend printed out this one to bring to the wedding and also there's there's a head of him somewhere around <laughs> here that's just like his head so cute so he had three cardboard cutouts of my dog at our wedding at various places throughout but you must have felt slightly sad now that you didn't have him. Uh, I, I mean although you were glad you didn't but there's this little bit of a regret you know that yeah he's horrible but yeah but, i mean you know? it's, it's it's like your kid yeah it would have been fun, but he just would have been a menace. Anyways, Wait. so now we have these cardboard cutouts and one lives here now. I still have one more question. Yeah? Yeah. So does he does he recognize that that's him? No. 